0: China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Ma Xiao, an assistant professor of political science at Peking University, and a faculty associate at Peking University's Research Center for Contemporary China. Today, we'll be discussing his book, Localized Bargaining, The Political Economy of China's High-Speed Railway Program, which was recently published by Oxford University Press. Xiao, thanks for joining
1: the podcast. Thanks, Jude. It's a great pleasure.
0: So I wanted to start out by asking if you could give us a bit of background about your academic and research interests. How did you get on the path of such Mm -hmm. an intense interest in China's political and bureaucratic system.
1: Sure, it's a long story. So I was a Japanese major back in college, but that interest started when I was in high school. So in early 2000, China and Japan had a very rocky relationship, and Japan made to the news headline in China a lot. Uh, I was a political junkie already at the time, so that made me to choose Japanese as college major. Uh, when I was in college, I got this chance to be an exchange student in Japan at Kyoto University. And the faculty I studied with, Mabuchi Masaru, is an expert in Japanese bureaucracy. So I studied issues such as the promotion, the recruitment, the transfer and retirement of Japanese bureaucrats and what role the Japanese bureaucrats play in Japan's social and economic policymaking. So later I found out, in fact, Japan and China share much similarities in that regard. But that was the first time I got introduced to a serious political science topic. Another thing that has big impact on me during this period is the experience of living in Japan. So as, as you know, Japan has a very convenient and extensive network of, of railways, both the conventional railway as well as modern express railway, the Shinkansen. And actually, people in Japan take trains for commute. Uh, so at the time uh, when I was in Japan, around uh, 2009, people in China only take took trains for long-distance travel. So it was really an eye-opening experience for me to take trains to go to school every day when I was in Japan. And around the same time, one, uh, one of the very few railways in China, high-speed railways in China, such as the one that connects Beijing and the Tianjin, the one between Wuhan and Guangzhou began operation. And I saw in news that people are now also commute on these railways. So it's a very interesting experience. Seeing from Japan, see how China is experiencing all these changes. Uh, This, uh, I think, cultivates my interests in, in railway as a hobby, but not as a scholar. But many years later, when I have to choose a topic for my dissertation, I decided to work on it.
0: The book we're going to be discussing today, Localized Bargaining, is just really a deep exploration of the lived realities and incentives that are facing various actors at the sort of national level, but most importantly, at the subnational level, who negotiate this really complicated process of trying to attract resources, in this mm-hmm. case, through the high-speed rail- railway program. We're going to talk a lot about precisely how these bureaucratic actors operate, but maybe to start out with, could you just give us a broad overview of China's high-speed rail system? Mm -hmm. I mean, how big is this? How recent is its development? I learned a lot in the book about the high-speed rail system Mm -hmm. that I just had no idea about. Could you just sketch a broad overview for listeners?
1: Sure. So the, the first Train in China was built back in the 19th century, but the high-speed railway is a, is a much more recent uh, thing. I think uh, the, the first high-speed railway was uh, st- started construction in 2004 with the release of the me- medium-to-long-term railway network plan. In, in that year, the per capita GDP of China was $1,500. According to a World Bank report, uh, China was the first country to build a high-speed railway below per capita income of $7,000 because high-speed railway is a fairly pricey way of travel. So at the beginning, not many people think the network will succeed or expand very rapidly. But in the 18 years following the beginning of the construction, uh, the railway network expanded really quick. So by the end of last year, now the total length of the railway network has grown to 40,000 kilometers. That's more than twice the length of any other country's high-speed railway combined. In terms of investment, based on my calculation from China Railway Yearbook, the total investment, the government investment in high-speed railway has been uh, accumulatively now amounts to 10 trillion RMB or 1.5 trillion US dollars. To put that number in context, the interstate highway system, according to the Department of Transportation, cost in total about 260 billion US dollars across a span of 40 years. So either by the length of the network or by the amount of investment, this is really, I would say, one of the largest infrastructure programs in modern human history. And the China Railway Corporation announced in 2020 that they are going to further expand that network in the next decades or few. So by 2035, the network will reach 70,000 kilometers, so that would be an additional 30,000 kilometers being built in the next 15 years. And network will cover every city with at least half million population. I understand half million may sound a lot, but in China, that's typically the size of a county.
0: <laughs> Maybe a, one additional general question. Before, if I'm a local level cadre, why is it important? So you mentioned $1.5 trillion of spent on this over uh-huh. the course of the high-speed rail. Why functionally is it important for me as a municipal cadre to try mm-hmm. to steer resources mm-hmm. that are being spent on this project to my location? Is it just about career promotion? Mm-hmm. What's the full set of incentives that are working for local level mm-hmm. officials? Why do they work so hard to bring resources to their locality?
1: That's a great question. So I'm sure you you read some of my other colleagues, they published papers on like local leaders, municipal or provincial leaders. They have very short tenures. Uh, Usually the tenure is from three to four years. So they are not going to reap the long term benefit of railways, uh, such as the, the improved accessibilities or improvement in local business environment. Most of the benefit, I think, comes from the short-term investment in fixed asset, the, the infrastructure investment. This can boost local economic growth and, in turn, increase the, the promotion prospects. But I think there are some also some other important aspects, for example, when a railway project gets approved by the central government and begin construction, it became a a headline news. It it gives locality and its leaders good publicities. And we know for politicians, any publicity is good publicity. I think uh, that's also the case for Chinese local officials. They get attention from their superiors uh, by having these projects bring into uh, local jurisdictions. I think the project is also very popular among local elites, not just the top-level local leaders. When a project is commissioned, these local bureaucracies that are related to these projects, they have more jobs to do. They can have larger budget, they can hire more personnel, they can also have a bigger end-of-the-year bonuses. And also these kind of infrastructure typically boosts land prices, particularly for the land that near, near the station. And we know the, the revenue local government get from selling the land is now important sources of, of uh, uh, local uh, budget. So this is becomes very popular among ordinary bureaucrats, not just the top-level leaders in local government. Even for r- regular citizens, except for a few whose land gets requisition and has to move because of the construction, now the travel through high-speed railway becomes a very popular method among uh, ordinary Chinese. So there's also a significant amount of popular demand among local citizens. They will voice their concerns online and offline to push their leaders to get these projects. So it's a project with very rare congruences in preferences among leaders, elites, and the masses for locality. And that's why I think it explains the big incentives that are pushing these leaders to trying to get these projects.
0: You had mentioned earlier the medium to long-term railway network plan um, mm-hmm. in the mid-2000s, which ushered in this phase of high-speed rail development. Can you talk a bit about the interplay between central-level planning documents and local-level incentives? Again, if I'm a, I'm a local-level official and I see Beijing put out this new, this medium to long-term, long-term mm-hmm. railway network plan. What sort of incentives kick in when these plans come out? And, and what is the method by which the center is able to track implementation of these sort of long, medium to long-term plans?
1: So the, the, the first version of the medium to long-term plans was released in 2004 by the state council, the, Ch- the China's central government. Uh, it's not a super detailed plan on w- where the stations should be built or how much the investment is or how much land should be requisitioned. It's a, it's a rough plan on the priority of the constructions. Uh, they have a, a, a general directions of railways and major cities on the railway, but not every stations. But the plan is important. A railway can only be built after its inclusion in the medium to long-term railway network plan but the plan is also not rigid, binding documents. Uh, So you mentioned that the central government has to track the implementation. In fact, I would consider the document more as as a recognition of local developmental initiatives. So if local government proposed a railway project, the first steps is to have this project being included in the medium to long-term railway network plans. To have that uh, proposal being included in the plan, Uh, local government needs to have the consent of the Ministry of Railway, now the China Railway Cooperation, the Ministry of Transport, and the National Development and Reform Commissions. So after being included in that plan, the locality can start the formal regulatory approval process in other ministries, such as the Ministry of Natural Resources and uh, Ministry of Ecology and Environment, etc. So I, I want to show one example that this is not a binding document, but instead it's an evolving document that constantly including local developmental initiatives. So if the initial plan that was released in 2004 was carried through, by 2020, China should have 12,000 kilometers of high-speed railway. That was the plan was initially set in 2004. But we ended up having 40,000 kilometers. So the additional 28,000 kilometers are all these inclusions put, uh, pushed by the local government and later recognized by the central government. So this shows, I think, that the document per se, that the way it involves shows how local government can change actually change central policies.
0: Let's now transition to the main argument of the book. And like all good book titles, the main argument is is right there in the title. Localized bargaining. Can you lay out the, the broad argument of the book with a focus on what is localized bargaining and what are the environmental realities which give rise to it in terms of the structure of China's political system and the Gap between what the center wants and the number of bureaucratic actors who act as intermediaries.
1: Sure. So localized bargaining refers to bottom-up solicitation activities on the part of local government to try to get access to more policy benefits from their superiors. And in the case of high-speed railways, these superiors refer to central government ministries, such as Ministry of Railways, Ministry of Transport. National Development and Reform Commissions, Ministry of Natural Resources, Ministry of Ecology and Environment. Uh, So a locality has to bring on board all these ministries before they can start up constructions. So unlike many other projects, such as smaller roads or smaller dams, which local government, they can authorize themselves, for railways, the local government must receive approval from the central government before they can start with the construction. So what I'm arguing in the book is that the allocation of these projects, instead of a top-down design by the central government or central leaders for whatever purposes, either to benefit their core constituents or to prioritize certain developmental initiatives, in, in this regard, the recipient of the policy benefit, which is local government in China, played a very important role in shaping where the investment will go. So the reason I use localized in the title is there are two reasons for that. So first, the subject of, of the bargaining are these projects. The localities are trying to bring these policy benefits into their jurisdictions. They are not seeking to rewrite relationship, the central local relationship, or some more broader institutional arrangement in China. They're only seeking very specialized localized interests. The other thing is that the, the term localized bargaining is a play on collective bargaining, on the words collective bargaining. So in collective bargaining, employees often they form a groups and they, they kind of came up with a strategy against their sp- employers. But in localized bargainings, localities, even nearby localities, they adopt very different strategies. In fact, a close-by nearby locality can be fierce competitors in, in, in these kind of bargainings. So I think the turn is built on the concept of fragmented authoritarianism, which is a very popular concept in Chinese politics. We see the, the, there are numerous central bureaucracies responsible for the railway project, and localities have to seek approval from these ministries with very diverse and sometimes even conflicting agendas, and interests. So this necessitates bottom-up lobbyings on the part of localities. On
0: page 69 of the book, you have a, mm-hmm. a really interesting 17-point mm-hmm. list, which you mm-hmm. were able to put together after conversations uh-huh. with a senior staff member at a governor's office. And this gives a good visual representation of the number of of actors and steps Mm -hmm. that that have to occur in order for a a province to get permission to construct Mm -hmm. high-speed rail. I'm not gonna read all of these, but -hmm. just to read a few to give the listener an indication. So local government drafts a report requesting the construction of a new railway, delivers this to the China Railway Corporation. China Railway Corporation sends the report to a subsidiary planning institute The National Development and Reform Commission, the Ministry of Transport, and China Railway Corporation agree in principle on the proposal. They include the route in the medium and long-term railway network plan. Next, a designing agency chosen through the bidding process initiated by the China Railway Corporation drafts a pre-feasibility report. Then the China Railway Economic and Planning Research Institute of the China Railway Corporation conducts internal review of of the pre-feasibility report. Mm -hmm. Third-party engineering uh, consulting firm conducts an external review of the pre-feasibility report and on and on and on. So already just, you know, we're only a few steps in and we've Mm -hmm. already got five, six, seven actors who have a veto or who can uh, say fly in the ointment, as we say, um, who can can, uh, make this process more difficult. So Mm -hmm. can you... Kind of walk us through what this collective bargaining might look like in in practice. How are local level officials navigating mm-hmm. all these interests, and and what can they offer to incentivize a yes from all of these various ministries rather than mm-hmm. a than a no? And mm-hmm. sorry, long question. Mm-hmm. Final part of it: How mm-hmm. do I make sure that money that Jude Blanchet City is able to build a railway at rather than the Machau you know, a uh-huh. uh, city getting it? How, how am I able in my locality to ensure that resources are coming uh-huh. my way?
1: Thanks for the question. I think that's the majority of my book is about. I think uh, for localities, the most common thing they do is to send staff members to these ministries to, to do informational lobbying, telling the bureaucrats in the ministry that our locality needs railway stations. And these informational lobbying are not easy tasks. So I, I recently saw a draft or a pre-feasibility report that you just mentioned in my book. It's 900 pages for one railway project. So they list all the technical details, the, the, the estimate amount of investment, the environmental impact, etc. So it actually requires a lot of manpower on the part of localities to conduct these kind of lobbying. So that's why I would say almost every Chinese province and major municipalities, they established permanent offices in Beijing to facilitate these kind of uh, activities. By the way, if uh, if you ever visit Beijing and if you are interested in Chinese local cuisines, the best places to get uh, local cuisine in, in, in Beijing is, is well, are, 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 are these say, offices.
0: I live just down the street from Shukha Yuan. And uh-huh. of course the Chongqing had their Beijing office just behind there. So we were always right there having our, our Sichuan food.
1: Right, they have the most genuine local food uh, in there because they serve their own leaders, so they have to make the food right. But since every Chinese places are doing this, and you know China have like 330 cities, 2,800 counties, and the central ministry, they're getting literally a gigantic amount of information every day. So which one, they, they, they have to pr- prioritize the different issues. So uh, to show the urgency of the matter, also to show the sincerity of in local's intention, uh, loca- local leaders often pay personal visits to central ministries and try to secure meetings with ministerial leaders or high-level bureaucrats. So that's why if you read the news report back in 2012, 2013, the restaurants near the National Development and Reform Commission are very hard to book. You have to book three months ahead of time in order to secure a seat, simply because there are so many meetings between local officials and uh, ministerial bureaucrats taking place there. So in these meetings, local leaders will convey uh, local, uh, localities' uh, needs for policy benefits. They also make exchanges and compromises to the ministerial officials. For example, local leaders can promise they will take a larger share of the financial responsibility for these projects or give some some other, maybe perhaps uh, the discount in in, in land in in this project. Some officials are more effective in in doing these. For example, if some local leaders, they have previously worked in the central ministries, it's much easier for them to secure meetings with their colleagues uh, in the bureaucracies. And also leaders... Local leaders in China, they do not share the same rank. So you mentioned the, the uh, Jude Blanchard city and the Machia City, but when we look at Chinese cities, they differ so much in their political rank and powers. For example, uh, Shanghai is a centrally administered city, and its party secretary is a party bureau member, right? So, so the party secretary have the same rank as the vice president of China, whereas a regular city like Dongguan or like uh, Jiaxin, these cities, the party secretary of these cities only have the same rank as a regular bureaus inside the ministries. So it's not difficult to imagine when cities with very different rank, they came to Beijing trying to meet with ministerial leaders. They were able to secure very different kind of meetings with ministerial leaders. And it's also the cities with higher ranks and more power within the hierarchies they are more likely to secure favorable outcomes when they try to convince the ministerial leaders for the majority of the cities that doesn't have these kind of political capitals or personal connections they will also try to mobilize social resources resources that can help cities reach central leadership circumvent these bureaucrats and reach central leader directly and then these central leaders can put pressure on the ministries to try to reach desired uh, policies by the localities. For example, uh, a lot of the localities in China now are mobilizing retired leaders, retired national leaders or retired revolutionaries. These people, they have the ears of the general party secretaries or the, uh, or the premiers. So when, when these national level leaders make specific directions on a certain railways, the ministries uh, in the state council, they have to move to carry on uh, their directives. But for localities without political capital or without social connections to national level leaders, some localities in China, they take a very risky path of using social pressures to influence their superiors. So in my book, I document this episode, whereas in, in a lot of places in China in the past decades, we see mass mobilizations demanding railway stations. It's a very interesting type of mass mobilizations. We all know, not in my backyard, like uh, Ningbi, right? But these kind of mobilization, I call them reverse Ningbi. Please be in my backyard. <laughs> Localities are demanding uh, central government to build facilities in their jurisdictions. And uh, in these events, we see uh, participants They're gathering signatures, demanding railways. We also see gatherings, mostly peaceful, in front of local government buildings. But of course, some of them later turn into violence and get investigated by higher level authorities. It is a risky path because once local government officials' involvement was clear, they can get punished. But this strategy can sometimes also be uh, rewarding because it puts a significant amount of pressure on these superiors they will be held responsible if they're not reacting to local demand. Uh, If they don't make concessions, then in the future, if similar events occur, they will be responsible for not being responsive enough to sources of social instability. And this is a very serious allegation inside Chinese bureaucracy. So I think these are are some of the strategies local government use in in trying to navigate the system.
0: Xiao, I have a follow-up question, which is,
1: Mm
0: -hmm. I'm sure technically speaking beijing f- would frown upon this localized bargaining process because it would violate all the norms of leninist discipline and hierarchy that being right. said mm-hmm. what is beijing's unofficial attitude about this very normalized process mm-hmm. whereby localities you know subnational agents lobby the government for Mm -hmm. channeling resources. Mm -hmm. Is the general view in Beijing Mm -hmm. that utilization of political capital, social connections Mm -hmm. is within the bounds, mass pressure, mass mobilization, as you say, is a risky gambit. So is there kind Mm -hmm. of a a, a wink wink that that this is all normalized and acceptable Mm -hmm. so long as it stays Mm -hmm.
1: within the bounds? A lot of activities of localized bargaining falls into the boundary of corruption, I think, by the official definition of the Chinese state. For example, inviting ministerial bureaucrats to uh, luxurious dinners, or giving them presents, or mobilizing societal connection to try to lobby uh, these officials. But I think the central government has a fairly amount of uh, tolerance for these kind of behavior, even though this kind of behavior has been there for decades. But The Beijing offices are still there uh, for most of the cities and provinces. I think an important reason is that there is no institutionalized mechanisms for Chinese localities to voice their policy demand in, uh, uh, in central government policymaking. I remember reading Susan Shirk's very influential book, The Political Logic of Economic Reform, back in the 1990s. She made this very insightful observation that the state council constitutes of only functional ministries. Local government, the provinces never participate in the State Council meeting, despite the fact that their interests are being discussed and affected in these policy making process. And we all know that China is a very large country with vast territories and a significant amount of variations in local conditions. So, how can the central government heed information, heed the local information to make good policies? I think localized bargaining provides a mechanism for localities to transmit local conditions, local information to central policymakers, and also making the central policies adjusted to local conditions. Uh, So I think this is the reason why the central government has been tolerating this kind of uh, phenomenon for decades.
0: If I can quote from the end of your book, uh, in the final pages you make a really interesting argument about how this Mm -hmm. bottom-up policy bargains might strengthen the regime. You say the Mm bottom-up policy bargains documented in this book provide a regularized, controllable mechanism for a Mm -hmm. much broader group of elites and organized Mm -hmm. interests within the regime to articulate Mm -hmm. their demands. Right. Um, So it sounds like there might be elements of this process that, as you say, technically count as corruption or when pushed to the extremes by officials through mass participation to put pressure so those become edge cases that that the party is worried about but in general there is a um a it gives buy-in for subnational elites who are not sitting in a politburo meeting it gives Mm -hmm. them the the perception that they have agency and some voice in participating and also as you were i was imagining In terms of the information problem that the center has about understanding what's happening at Mm -hmm. lower levels, the Beijing offices must be in some sense quite helpful.
1: Right. It's like uh, embassies for Chinese localities.
0: As a sort of upward movement of information rather than as a kind of a push rather than a top-down pull to try to extract information up.
1: Right, right. Because in, in political science, we often considered the, the functions of ele- elections, competitive elections. The elections mostly serves as a function of information signaling to politicians, where I should prioritize my policies, which segment of population I should divert resources to. But as we all know, China doesn't have competitive elections, right? So the government must have substitute mechanisms to get all these information from the population, from different segments of the country, to know where they should prioritize policy resources. I think this localized bargaining provide a function, provide information for the the leaders to to make these kind of decisions.
0: We may not know the answer to this, but Mm -hmm. how does this localized bargaining process affect perceptions by average citizens about the fairness of resource allocation? In other words, if Masao City goes Mm -hmm. all in to try to start a railway project, Mm-hmm. and and you lose to Jude Blanchet mm-hmm. municipality, does that affect citizen perception in Moscow city about uh-huh. how fair the process is?
1: That's a very good question. I think so far, most of these processes are taking place behind doors. So it's not known to the general public. I don't know if that will change with the publication of the book, with the podcast. Now more people are getting to know, particularly those who can speak English. Now they suddenly realize there is this process. But, as you see in the past few decades, particularly in the past uh, ten years, uh, there are these mobilizations regarding mass mobilizations regarding railways I, I, I sense there is a rise of popular localism, which I I, I I discussed in the in the final chapters. Local citizens are are becoming increasingly aware of their local interests, particularly the competition with nearby localities. I think everyone, particularly for people who are interested in in, in these uh, issues in infrastructures or in other uh, larger projects, everyone understands this is a must. This has, this are, this, these are something that has to be done in order to uh, pull resources to our jurisdictions. But they, mostly they get disappointed at their local leaders for failing to outcompete other places, particularly nearby places. But I don't see among uh, those people who are very interested in this process, the disappointment about the system per se. A lot very few people realize that perhaps with other institutions, local interest can get articulated even better. But I think now at at this point, a lot of the citizens understand that going to Beijing, convincing the ministry is a must. It, it, it's something that they have to do in order to to, to pull resources uh, to, to, to their localities.
0: Final question is how applicable is the localized bargaining framework that you created to look at high-speed railway. Can I use this to understand other industries, other major infrastructure projects like roadways, dams? How far can I take this framework and apply it in in understanding bureaucratic politics in China?
1: Sure. So, but when I published the book, or when I was in the process of writing the book, some other scholars, they came to me, discussed the project. And I find most of them are interested in China's overseas infrastructure project. For example, China's rail, railroad or port project in Africa and Southeast Asia. And I, 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 because so many people are asking me the question, so I actually look into the uh, these issues. And I find that, in fact, the framework can also be used to understand China's overseas infrastructure project. Mm. So we see in a lot of China's overseas infrastructure, China's state-owned enterprises are doing the constructions. So even though if you look at the bidding process, the host countries, the bidding process is open to all kinds of tenders. They are not limiting uh, the project to state-owned enterprises. And the Chinese central government also encourage private firms to go overseas. But why state-owned enterprises end up having all these projects? So when I look into these projects, I find these infrastructure projects, or even domestic projects as well, these overseas projects, they require a lot of capital. So uh, these construction companies, they have to get finance from banks. So the the institution in China responsible for the finance of these overseas projects is are China's policy banks. But in order to receive loans from China's state-owned policy banks, the project needs to go through evaluation process by the National Development and Reform Commissions, the Ministry of Commerce, and also the state-owned insurance companies. You have to navigate this fragmented bureaucracies. And for state-owned companies, because they are insiders of the China's regime and because they have better connections and they know how things works, so they have an edge over the private bidders, the private tenders in this process. And eventually they end up getting most of these loans and winning the project. So it's interesting to think about because a lot of the time we think about China, these overseas projects as state initiatives. But if you look at this process, why state-owned enterprises, they win, it's because they, they compete with other firms. But in this case, the, the actions taking place on the firm levels. So it's more like lobbying by firms, by different types of firms. But state-owned enterprises, because they have these connections, they have the know-how of navigating such a fragmented bureaucracies. They, they often won eventually in this process. So I think even though my project is about the railway system inside China, but I think it can also help us understand China's overseas infrastructure project which I know a lot of people are interested in. Yeah, and of
0: course, as you were talking, I was thinking of the parallels between a province with its Beijing office. Of course, all all the big SOEs who are out on the Belt and Road, of course, they have their own. They have their own Beijing office. Political capital as as regime mm. insiders, as you say, the the mm. the ability to pull on connections. Is, mm-hmm. is significant. They're probably not hiring retired revolutionaries yet, <laughs> uh, but they probably don't need to, but, but yeah, there's mm-hmm. an interesting parallel. Ciao. I want to thank you for taking the time today. And um, for listeners, we really only scratched the surface of this book. As I was telling Xiao before we started to record, I feel like the book localized bargaining should be on every syllabus for anyone trying to understand China's political system. Not only is the book a a really fantastic wealth of information on how bureaucracies operate, as you can tell with some of my questions, I'm always interested in the incentives facing a a random cadre somewhere in China. This just pulls together a fantastic case study to think about central local relations. And as you just heard from Xiao's final answer, the book also provides a framework that we can look to apply to other aspects of uh, China's development and investment. So there's just lots of really good reasons why I think this book should be of interest to anyone, even if you're not interested in railway projects, I assure you the the value extends far beyond that. So Chow, really appreciate your time. I really appreciate your research. And I'm looking forward to your next book, your next papers. We're really fortunate to have um, have you working on these really hard issues. So thank you.
1: Thank you, Jude, for this very generous words. And it's a great pleasure and honor for me to talk with you. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit CSIS.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog.